SequelCast 2 is part of the Batman Podcast Network. For more information, go to batman-on-film.com. We can't live in fear. And I can't stand idly by and watch us stumble into the madness of possible nuclear destruction. And so I've come to a decision. I'm going to do what our governments have been unwilling or unable to do. Effective immediately, I'm going to rid our planet of all nuclear weapons. Welcome to Sequel Cast 2, a podcast looking at films in a franchise one movie at a time. We're uh, looking at the Superman films, and this week we're looking at Superman 4, The Quest for Peace. I'm your host, Matt bradley Shergi. With me is William Thrasher. Hey, cool. I'm breakdancing, man. Yeah, and uh, Superman 4, Quest for Peace, came out in uh, 1987 off a alleged budget of 17 million made 36.7 million worldwide which is a far cry from the the previous films directed but it did by not Sydney, lose money it did not lose money no but directed by Sidney J Fury produced by Golan and Globus Menaheim Golan and Yoram Globus a screenplay by Lawrence Connor and Mark Rosenthal based off a story by Christopher Reeve Lawrence Connor and Mark Rosenthal based on characters by Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster starring Christopher Reeve Gene Hackman John Cryer Margot Kidder with music by Alexander Courage, uh, adapted from themes by John Williams, cinematography Ernest Day, edited by John Shirley. So, um, yeah, this movie, you know, is, is pretty infamous. I, I think for the record, I found this more watchable than Superman 3 for whatever reason. But I was thinking about saving it to the end, but, but I agree. I don't think this is as bad as Superman 3. <laughs> Now, I mean, this this one has a pretty famous uh, production history in that, you know, the, the Sal Kings, who, who we've talked uh, in, in great detail about in our past shows, um, after Superman 3, they made Supergirl, and both of those were kind of disappointing, so they decided, you know, we're not going to do Superman 4, and instead, Golden Globus uh, Canon Films picked it up, and, um, and, and part of the impetus for this is Christopher Reeve wanted to be more involved with the story and he thought well gee wouldn't it be wonderful if uh, you have the story of Superman getting rid of the world's nuclear weapons well beyond that I listened to the audio commentary with the screenwriter and, and he oh, talks yeah. about how they wanted to do a movie that, that goes into that, that, that ancient theological question uh, if God or in this case Superman is all powerful all knowing and all caring why do bad things happen in the world? And they wanted to like had they wanted to do a movie that wrestled with the exploration of of that moral philosophy, um, which the movie we got I don't think is all that successful with grappling with those concerns. But I am thankful that they at least were trying to make a movie that was about something in addition to being a fun superhero romp. Right, and uh, and also I mean you know they they made a real push to to try and get. Richard Donner to get back to direct it and have Tom Mikowitz back to write it. And um, they just, I think, were somewhat leery of working with Golan and Globus. But also, 
as far as the story goes, and I think one of the documentaries um, on the big DVD set, Tom Minkowitz said, you know, there's not much drama in that story. So Superman takes the missiles and tosses them into space. Then what? And when you have such a huge, rich library of past Superman comics you can do stories of, to have this, I mean, he resolves the quest for peace pretty quickly. Yeah, and we also, we get the introduction, so we haven't had a, a true supervillain uh, since uh, Superman 2. The the computer and the characters in Superman 3 don't, don't really count. And so this introduces us to the nuclear man, and this is such a bizarre... It is so bizarre, because Superman, who has a rich history of villains, has a huge rogues gallery... You'd think they could have found one established radioactive character to throw in this movie. But they don't. Not they just, just make up yeah. a, a villain that we don't care about because he has no history whatsoever. And not just that. I mean, the uh, the budget for this was slashed in half shortly before filming. And, uh, that, and you can tell. You know, affected, and you can tell with the effects. I mean, the budget for <laughs> Superman 4 Quest for Peace is half the budget of Supergirl. Like, they really weren't working with what they could. I mean, over 30 minutes was cut out of the film. No, I've, and, heard, um, I've heard bigger estimates. I've heard as much as 47 minutes were cut from this I've film. I've heard 47, right. I mean, it, it's quite a lot. And, uh, you know, in, in the original script, uh, they have an original nuclear man that Superman kills quickly, and then they have to go and make the second nuclear man. And in the film, all you see is the second nuclear man. I don't think having two nuclear men would have made it better. I, but, I disagree I think yeah. like so I've I've watched the deleted scenes with the nuclear man Mark one uh, and I mm-hmm. wish some version of that was in the movie because one it does keep the action momentum going having sort of a sure. mini boss Superman can do battle with but beyond that the first generation nuclear man that was cut from the film I really feel like what they were so Golden and Globus clearly don't care about about Superman. But when I see the footage of the Generation 1 Nuclear Man, I think they were trying to channel Bizarro. Mm. Because like in the comics at the time, he was an an incomplete clone of Superman. But he also has all of Bizarro's indicators, such as messy black hair, uh, pallid skin, sort of weird crevices to his face, uh, subnormal intelligence, bizarre behavior. it, it would have given us an established villain, which I would have loved to have seen. Now, now that being said, the scenes that he's in outside of his creation, they're not that good. And and also, there's um, things in here with uh, a lot more in the original screenplay, which I was reading some of before we started recording. Of uh, the boy in school writing a letter to Superman, and more about that. And so it's not so random where you get the headline in the movie like Superman ditches boy you know stands up local town kid in the movie I think it's very abrupt in the screenplay that sort of build up more and that kid is more of a sub character although oddly enough in the script the kid is like a high school student um, <clears throat> yeah I think they went they, I, I think they did go a bit too young mm-hmm. and maybe you know middle school would have been a good middle ground I think high school seems a bit old but and and you don't get much of a setup as to why 
about the Cold War. Like, you could have had more building up of the nuclear stuff and have that happen later. I don't know. And then, I mean, you're right. that The action in this movie is very focused towards the, the last half. They pretty much cut out a lot of the story beats and had it be mainly action. I don't think it helps. They have a... a um, like like a, a stuntman as nuclear man as opposed to an actor and his voice is dubbed over the God, the effects are just bad well um, I, strangely enough that's one decision that i like i like that when nuclear man speaks it's gene hackman it's lex luther's voice coming out of him i mm. i rather like that yeah i don't know it's well i mean i think we can uh start talking from the beginning of the film and kind of work our way through as we do, but Superman is... Uh... Yeah, we open with a nice action set piece where Superman rescues some cosmonauts uh, when their space station is accidentally hit by uh, by uh, orbital debris. And I do like the touch in this movie that Superman speaks multiple languages. He speaks in Russian to the astronauts at the beginning. Later in Italy, there's a scene with volcanoes and he speaks in Italian to the local people. It's a, yeah, I like that touch nice as well. Touch. It's pretty good. Um, and, and we have Clark go back to Smallville, and you have something you see in a lot of 80s films, and I'm sure they did this in the comics as well, and that these uh, people were trying to buy the land, his family's land. Well, yeah, the, his, his mother has, has passed away between Superman 3 and Superman 4, leaving Clark in owning the farm. And he wants to sell it, but it's really important to him that it be sold to a farmer who's going to use the land and respect the land. But the developer or the, the, the real estate agent he's working with just keeps telling him to sell it towards these developers who are going to put up strip malls and things like that. And I, I do like, I do like Clark trying to do what he can to preserve some, some old, uh, some, some sort of tradition and some Americana. And you get to see Clark as, you know, just by himself, fending off against a normal person, which is nice. He's not in the middle of the Daily Planet. He's we get not, some physical um, comedy when the guy yeah. wants to throw the baseball at him and he can't hit it. And he does that kind of Buster Keaton spin. Right. Uh, it's, it's a good bit of business. But unfortunately, you know, you have him going to the barn and he, he uncovers a, uh, a Kryptonian power um, module. Power module and, and yeah, there's a power module back. on his escape pod, and when he take and this is when like the bad the opening credits looked horrendous, but this only drives home how bad <laughs> the effects are going to be. He takes this really bad looking glowing crystal out of the pod, and the pod just kind of shimmers away into nothingness. And mm -hmm. this is this sets up bad storytelling because the, the the voiceover that he gets in his head from the elders of Krypton, it's all but saying here's the thing you're going to need to solve the problem in the third act. Right. And also, it's... Um, I, I was reading a, a version of the screenplay, and I, I was kind of... You know, in the screenplay, it makes more sense. Like, it's not just random Kryptonians. It's Jor-El. It's his father. Now, I don't think they would have gotten Marlon Brando to do Superman 4, but I think... No, absolutely not, a, but they could have gotten but, somebody but, you know, to impersonate him. Right, or you know, having to be a family member or someone who whose opinion matters more than these random old dudes from Krypton is just, uh, you know, you know, it, it starts the movie off as a bit weak sauce. And I, I do want to mention the opening credits do look bad, and on the commentary they make fun of them. But I, I do like in this one the music is by Alexander Courage, you know, perhaps better known for doing things like the Star Trek theme song, and um, he has some pretty fun arrangements of the music in here. Even if it's not with as full of an orchestra as we got, like, in the first movie. 
So we go back to the Daily Planet, and there's more... Uh, I, I like the, the subplot in the Daily Planet in this film. I think it feels like something where newspapers are trying to be more sensational, like tabloids. Yeah, it's, have, uh, it's a subplot better than... In. Than what the than what the movie deserves because this uh this uh this rich man by the name of Warfield has purchased the Daily Planet and has installed his daughter, uh, Lacey Warfield, uh, in as its like new supervising editor. And yeah, they want to make the paper more profitable, so it's all about you know trying to make things more sensationalist. And you know, of course, Clark doesn't like that. Lois doesn't like that, and Perry White doesn't like that. And I I like how. They're all against that change, but for different reasons that are very true to their character. And also, it's not you get the daughter of David Warfield, sort of the tycoon that's taking over the paper. Uh, his daughter, Lacey, um, is the new editor of the paper, and, and she has a flirtatious relationship with Clark Kent that I think is really nice, and it, it's, a, it's a different sort of um, love triangle than what we got in Superman 3. It's it's a neat romantic complication, and I do I do really like that she she's attracted to Clark for Clark, that she kind of she likes his honesty and his sort of down home attitude. Um, one so one thing I want to uh, point out as far as like the Superman mythology, there is a long precedent uh, in Superman stories to work with double L's. You have Lois Lane, Lana Lang, mm. Lex Luthor, <laughs> and there there are a few others. And I feel yeah. like L- Lacey, oh good, we've got one L, where's the second one? We don't get it. And I realize that is the most nitpicky comic, bur- comic book nerd thing. And and yet they're halfway there, although I have to, I suspect Lacey is probably an accidental first name. Yeah, it could be. And, uh, you know, we get Superman going back to the Fortress of Solitude, and once again... Which the has grown heads. back, apparently. Yeah. Uh, oh, that's right, because he destroyed it in the second one. And, um, you know, they sort of talk about that, you know, Earth needs to solve its own problems. And I don't know, it's just so on the nose, and you could have done something, you know, in the screenplay it has interesting things, whereas um, he's listening to these Krypton recordings, he, it flashes back to scenes from the first film of Krypton blowing up and stuff, Hmm. which could have been... You know, sort of interesting. I think I think they could have done a better job of building just the, as I mentioned earlier, the nuclear threat in the world at the time, because you don't get much context. Like Superman, he he gets the letter from the boy and he wants, or you know, Clark Kent gets the whatever. Superman gets the letter and he wants to get rid of nuclear weapons. And then he does it. But like there's no drama. There's no real conflict. They, he, like these talking heads talk to him. So what? Yeah, and because it's strange because in the first they don't even invoke the first movie because in the first movie he has to deal with two nuclear missiles. Oh, that's they, right. They and could have like... invoked that to give it some sort of give it some quick sure. context. Or maybe but, you know, yeah. last time he did something with nuclear missiles, it killed off Lois. Like you know, maybe he has some anxiety over that. But yeah, it, it's you're right. It's nothing. He just puts them all in a sack and tosses them into space well, and goes yeah. to the UN, and everyone applauds and. Well, yeah, because initially, because the boy writes a letter to the paper, and they publish the letter in the paper, and, you know, Superman kind of visits him to sort of, to visits the kid in school to kind of explain that, you know, it's it's difficult, and he doesn't feel right making that decision for the people of Earth, and uh, and that he doesn't really have a better answer, and that leads to the, was it Superman tells kid buzz off headline? Yeah, it's a very, uh, but yeah, yeah, very cheesy headline. Yeah, but the whole the whole ridding the world of nuclear weapons, I think, could have been 
it could have been handled better because again, that's a brilliant idea to do to to explore the the issues of having a character as powerful as Superman making that kind of decision for the whole planet. That that is a story worthy of some complex moral philosophizing. Uh, but yeah, he just makes one speech in front of the UN, and one thing that I could never figure out from that point of the movie on is are the nations of the world happy that he's doing this and are cooperating and that's why they fire missiles that he grabs or are those missile tests and he's intercepting those missiles like i never get the sense that the missiles that he's taking are ones that any of the governments wanted him to take i mean there's something with the uh, you know storytelling that you hinted at earlier thrasher where you have set up and pay off you set stuff up and you pay it off and you introduce conflict and here it's just so matter-of-fact, boom, 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 that you don't really care that he's even getting rid of the nuclear weapons. Like he's doing it, what, just because a boy writes a letter? It doesn't, it has no heft to it, and it really should. It should be a moving scene. It should, he should have some sort of personal stake with it, maybe, you know, and uh, instead, <coughs> you, you don't get that. And um, But we do and, and, get the, the introduction of Luthor. Yeah, two, two Luthors at that. Here you have Lex Luthor gets broken out of prison by his uh, nephew, Lenny Luthor. Lenny Luthor is played by John Cryer, who's better <laughs> known for being in, like, uh, the two John and a half Hughes men. films. Well, Two and a Half Men in more recent years, yeah, but also in, uh, he was in Pretty in Pink. He's got his biography, uh, So That Happened, and... I this may be apocryphal, but I believe that this movie only gets one sentence in that book. I, I was looking uh, online, and you know the AV Club has their kind of random roles mentioned, or it was some article in the AV Club. They talked to um, Cryer about Superman Four, and he said he'd love to come to a convention to talk about it. And he said he remembers, you know, being be excited, being in a big you know, big budget, or not big budget, but, you know, comic book movie, and he liked Superman and stuff. And he met up with Christopher Reeve for lunch in New York as they were working on the effects, and he, he's asking, oh, how's the movie doing? And Christopher Reeve was like, oh, they have no money for the effects. This is going to be terrible. And kind of, <laughs> he laid it to him straight, and he said that was sort of heartbreaking, but he enjoyed the experience of working on it and working with Gene Hackman. And, um, you know, it's like once they convinced Gene Hackman to do this film, they were able to get Margot Kidder and everyone else to come back on because they had difficult experiences with Superman 2, switching directors to Richard Lester. and uh, But it, it also strikes you as lazy, and I think we've said this before. The, the, we, this is the fourth Superman movie we've talked about. Lex Luthor is a bad guy in three of them. I mean, he is the, he is the nemesis, but yeah, this this is why the Nuclear Man should have been a character like Reactron or some other Superman villain. Oh, that being said, though, I love seeing Gene Hackman as Luthor in in this film. He's he's not phoning it in. He's doing a great job, and like, I, so I haven't seen this movie in a long time, and I was expecting to hate Lenny Luthor. I didn't. And I think hmm. it's because this particular interpretation of Lex Luthor is at his best when he has a dimwit to play off of. Yeah, I mean, it's the equivalent of um, Otis, right? It, it's someone yeah. that he, he picks on all the time. And and just Lenny's clothes are very much of the era with the the hair and the sort of the surfer dude accent. Yeah, he, he talks and he, he talks... Like a surfer dude, acts like a ro uh, rocker and dresses like a punk. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, it's almost like if you teamed up Lex Luthor with a Ninja Turtle. It's <laughs> kind of kind of ridiculous, but it, it's Although fine. Although this prefigured and, uh, those Ninja Turtles. It did, it did. That's fair enough. And uh, I, I like that as part of Lex's plan, he goes to a museum in Metropolis where Superman's hair is holding up like a... A thousand pound weight. A thousand pound weight. <coughs> and he just cuts it with like sit with pliers or something. Yeah, he just has wire cutters, and like I like to imagine that he that he like coated them with diamond dust or something so it could cut through anything. But yeah, and that his his whole master plan is breaking the glass, cutting the hair, and running out. That's his master plan. There's something like very like 1950s comic booky about that, which felt nice. It was like something old fashioned. You don't have to set it up or explain it or make an action sequence out of it. It's, it's a, an old smash and grab. And uh, yeah. unfortunately, you know, the, the birth of Nuclear Man, it should be this big epic thing in the screenplay it's described as being you know, all these homages to Frankenstein. But instead, it's just a big bunch of nothing. Yeah, because his whole plan is he wants to he wants to use the Superman DNA from the hair to create his own super being that will outclass Superman. So he gets some clone tissue, puts it in this module connected to a computer that also has fabric in it. <coughs> there is a specific line of dialogue to justify the nuclear man's costume. They hide it in a nuclear missile, trick the army into launching that nuclear missile in another great bit of Gene Hackman comedy. That gets th put into Superman's nuclear net. He throws that into the sun. And yeah, like there's a cartoon blob that comes out of the sun and turns into a cartoon fetus and then turns into the nuclear man. And the nuclear man has very 80s hair all teased out and um that the may the lemay outfit with the bare arms and the the power skirt yeah it's it's, it's zach brannigan's uniform it is it really is but um but we mentioned you know that there's just no personality to him he's just a force of nature with long nails that scratches superman and makes him sick and then also like uh, telekinetic powers as well that he just kind of summons that's the one thing, is they do sort of keep the Nuclear Man's powers consistent. But the Nuclear Man is where we start to get some really horrible mixed metaphors. So Nuclear Man is supposed to be supercharged because he's born, born in the sun, but that also makes him solar-powered, so in darkness he just goes completely catatonic. Right. Which... And yet later you see him in office buildings that aren't especially brightly lit and you think that would weaken them somewhat but not yeah really. they're really selective about when that weakness does and does not take effect mm -hmm. and, and yet you know in the middle of all this i think you get what might be my favorite scene in the film in which uh it's a double date between superman and lois and clark and lacy this the idea for this scene is great the dialogue as written is great, but on screen I find the pacing to be very, very off. It's it's not as rapid fire and rat a tat tat as it needs to be. But I do like I do like Christopher Lee Reeves' physical comedy when they're all getting in the elevator and he lets himself get hit by the luggage cart so that he can't <laughs> make it into the elevator just so he can change into the Superman costume and wait for them on a balcony. Well, then you have Superman. He keeps like jumping off the ledge and then running in the building and running back up, and it's it's. Uh... Yeah, trying to be a bit of a comedy of manners, and it, even if the, the pacing isn't what it should be, yeah, I mean, the, the intent is nice, and it's a nice sort of 
moment for for Clark. You know, it's always all about these movies are called Superman. They're not called Clark Kent after all. But it's nice you have some good Clark moments in this film. So something that that is very odd uh, is that during during the scene while Superman is talking to them, the doorbell rings, and when they go to the door, Clark is behind the door. So how did Superman ring the doorbell when he was in the room? Maybe he can project psychic force. Well, it's it's one of those things. It's like in in Superman two with the the giant S. It's like oh, geez, they, they give yeah. him one shot powers when they think they need it. Oh, but the the romance between Clark Kent and Lois, or between uh, Superman and Lois Lane in this film, I find very dissatisfying because they keep waffling. Because one idea that they introduce uh, when they do their horrible attempt to recreate the flying scene in the first film is that Lois Lane, not only did Lois Lane not have her memory erased at the end of Superman 2, but she's always known that Superman and Clark Kent are the same person. She's just been playing along. Except for the scenes where she has clearly had her memory erased. Hmm. And they keep right. going back and forth between her knowing that Clark Kent and Superman are one and the same and her not knowing that at all. And it, it, it feels like they were working with two different shooting drafts. Or they were missing a big scene that established why she's behaving a particular way at particular times. I think also the uh, Margot Kidder, unfortunately, looks bad in this film. Like, she, the hair looks weird, like it just seems off. And it's, uh, she doesn't have that spark she had in the original. Well, is this, is this before or after she had her uh, medical trouble? Let me look up. There we go. Drug problems. This is how we do research on the show. Because um, part of me wonders if that has something to do with it. Health issues. Although then again, you know, no, maybe they... you know th- th- that was later, like in the '90s, she had a, a manic episode where she was in some bushes screaming or something. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, I, I guess my theory is going to be that they blew all their makeup budget on Lenny Luther's hair and Nuclear Man's face. Right. Um, oh, we do get another callback. You know when this came... Oh yes. Oh, go on. I was saying, well, we do get another callback to the first film when uh, Lex Luthor broadcasts on a frequency that only Superman can hear, and we get that nice bit where he's singing Hello, Dolly. <laughs> yeah, that, There's that's just a such smarm and arrogance in that moment. I really love it. There is. Unfortunately, you know, when they show um, Times Square, it's not as bustling as you would expect. And I think that's also when they show, like, the UN earlier, it doesn't seem especially crowded. Well, this yeah, this scene. metropolis is identical to New York in every way. <laughs> it has a New York subway system. It has New York cars. Yes, it has the Statue of Liberty. But there's not enough people in it. I guess is my problem with it. When I think of yeah, New it does, York, it does feel somewhat underpopulated. It feels a little bit unpopulated. Uh, you know, I was uh, doing uh, looking some stuff up in 1987 when this came out. The domestic gross, meaning the United States and Canada. Guess which place this was for the year? Uh, seventh. 69th. Ooh. 
With the, in the United States and Canada, it made $15.6 million, according to BoxOfficeMojo.com. And, uh, you know, above it at 68, Sylvester Stallone's Over the Top, which is also <laughs> a Golden Globus film. Uh, below it, at 70, is um, Flowers in the Attic, which I don't know what that is. Oh, I believe that's a remake of a 1950s film, which is based on a short story. It's about a, uh, about a, a woman... Uh, dealing with uh with uh like schizophrenia in uh in i think the early 19 or the late 1900s if i'm remembering correctly i know i've seen the older version but to give you an idea of like some other sequels that did better than superman 4 that year uh jaws 4 the revenge benji the hunted police oh that's academy an awful 4, movie. police academy 4 revenge of the nerds 2 um, Nightmare on Elm Street 3 which we've covered Beverly Hills Cop 2 which we've also covered yeah so I mean there there's a lot that came out in 87 and this movie you got a lot of other reasons lost in the shuffle I think too many sequels too quickly that never helps things so and, you, um, you, you mentioned that you know where this falls being a Golan Globus film I would not be surprised if half the movies on that list were Golan Globus movies because they cranked stuff out Death Wish was also on there. Death Wish 4, which I think was Golden Globus. Yeah, I mean, this was towards the end of Golden Globus. And um, there's some very good documentaries about, you know, canon films and how that all went down. All right, so we do get uh, Superman's first showdown with the Nuclear Man, where they, they really try to make this sort of a big, exciting, high-stakes fight with the Nuclear Man stealing the Statue of Liberty and trying to drop it on Metropolis. And some part, like, this is, this, I will say, say this for this film, the script pulls no punches as far as its action set pieces, and I, uh, even though they miss the mark at almost every turn, I applaud them for doing their damnedest to try to bring that vision to the screen. They don't skimp, even though it looks terrible, they don't skimp (laughs) on showing you the Statue of Liberty being uprooted and thrown at Metropolis and then carried back. Right. It's, um, you know, one of our listeners, Eric McEver, was asking us, what did we think about the Great Wall of China sequence in this film? Um, I, I like so, so the later in the movie, it. Yeah, later in the movie, to give you context, uh, Nuclear Man does more stuff, and he uh, makes, like, Mount Vesuvius uh, erupt, and he, make, he knocks down, you know, parts of the Great Wall of China. Uh, a Great Wall of China that has no Asian people on it. It's all American no. tourists. That's right. Yeah, he blows up chunks of the wall. Uh, Superman comes in to fight him off. And th- and this is the only scene where uh, Reeves looks like he's phoning it in because I half expect that this was just an outtake that they put into the film. But Superman shoots blue lasers from his eyes which rebuild the Great Wall of China. But the yeah. shot of his face, it really looks like he saw a bird and was looking off to the side. Like, I don't, I feel like they just inserted that in. And it's, it is so silly, so awkward, and the effect is so bad. And, and especially the effect of them rebuilding the Great Wall of China, they just, like, do the footage backwards. Like, do, 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 it's, do, do. It's like No, they don't even do the footage video. backwards. It's all art cloaky where they just stack up the bricks one brick at a time. <laughs> 
But at such fast speed, you felt like they put the fast forward button on. Like it, it's oh, yeah, it's very fast. It's very cartoony. Um, and uh, interesting note: Superman does not speak in China, or not in China, in Chinese to the individuals. But he, in Italy, he does speak in Italian. When you see like the cheapest volcano eruption you'll ever see, and then it looks like it just makes the uh, the ground all muddy. But but again, like like they try to show the amazing Vista described in the script. Like I love the idea of Superman using his heat vision to cut the top off a mountain and then flip that mountain top over and use it to plug the volcano. That is so great and something so out of a Golden Age Superman comic. That is a nice visual. Now uh, you know. Speaking of effects. Um... In sort of, we kind of skipped over this, but in Nuclear Man's first battle, he he scratches Superman and Superman falls ill. And you have scenes of Clark Kent really ill and him back at Smallville almost looking like a ghost. How, how do you oh, think? Oh, yeah, they that... have him in this old age makeup that just yeah. looks hideous. And it's only like in one scene. And so it's like before they have him, you know, kind of covered up in blankets, shivering at home while Nuclear Man is wreaking havoc. Yeah, it makes it's, me feel um, like there was a whole subplot about Superman getting sick and weakening. Um, and then again, we get another one of those scenes where it makes it unclear whether Lois Lane knows he's Superman or not, where Superman lost his fight in the first cape with Superman, uh, in the first battle with Superman, and Lois brings Superman's cape to Clark Kent. In, in what should be a really touching scene, but it is it is tainted by the fact that we don't know whether, whether she knows who he is or not. Um, but yeah, and this is when we mentioned the power module being being given to him as the thing that will solve a third act crisis. He inserts the power module into his body and it cures him and he's fine. Yeah, again, like many things in this movie, too easy of a resolution, not enough he, struggle. Also, he takes I mean, it, two of these. About the effects, I think about the original Superman film on the poster, it says, you will believe a man can fly. In this one, the flying effects just look cheap. You know, in the first film, the first two films even, I'd say, um, they did a great effect of Superman in a distance would fly towards the camera and kind of turn at an arc. And he would always fly at these angles to make it look more majestic. But here, it's just often a composite of him flying straight directly towards the camera. More than that, it's the same flat. composite shot with different backgrounds. Right. Yes, over and over again. And then... Uh, especially there's a part earlier in the film where he takes Lois around the world, which brings to mind, you know, that, that very tender scene in the original. But this one, like, even the stock footage looks worse. Like, it's... It, well, it, it looks bad. It's trying to go... It, it's like, remember this thing you liked from the other movie? Here it is again, but cheaper. Well, beyond that... Superman's also a complete asshole because at one point, <laughs> not only does he drop Lois as a joke, at one point, he throw he just throws Lois who inexplicably, after being thrown, starts to move upward. Like, she curves upward like she can fly. Yeah, it really does not make sense. Yeah, it's 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 strange. But yeah, then we get our final showdown with the nuclear man that involves... that In something that is kind of smart and brassy, uh, Superman gets Lacey to help him trap Nuclear Man, because Nuclear Man's become obsessed with Lacey for some reason, uh, and that lures Nuclear Man out of hiding. There's a whole thing with the with pulling the elevator out of the top of the Daily Planet, dr dunking the Nuclear Man on the moon, a really embarrassing moon fight scene, um, which involves <laughs> Superman what, getting hammered into the ground. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is kind of cool in this film. You do see Superman and Nuclear Man fight in space, and that, that's a nice visual. He has someone with his same sort of powers, He's not just fighting in a city, in Metropolis or, or something, or in Paris. 
he is in space. And on the moon, like, fine. That's all good and well. But you're right, he just gets pounded into the ground. It almost feels like you're watching a Popeye cartoon or something. And then he, he pops out to get back at him. Like, it just... There's no stakes here. I, I like that the uh, animated nuclear effect around Nuclear Man doesn't always line up with Nuclear Man exactly. It seems like <laughs> off-center sometimes. And uh, and that he finishes off Nuclear Man by dropping him inside a nuclear plant. Yeah, and it makes all these lights all across the nation turn on. <laughs> that, that's yeah, cute. It's cute, yeah, but... but... But then he goes to then he goes to Luthor and he's like, "How'd you defeat my nuclear man?" He's like, "Oh, it's basic high school physics, uh, Luthor. I knew that as a creature powered by the sun, he was a source of nuclear energy." And this is where this is where all the mixed metaphors in this film get really really mangled, because nuclear man is supposed to be like a metaphor for the looming threat of nuclear war. Uh, except he's controlled by an individual, not a nation or a group or a government, but he's also solar powered. So without, so he's a clean source of energy. So without the sun, he has nothing, but then he himself can be used as nuclear fuel, which would seem to be an argument against sustainable solar power and an argument in favor of nuclear power, which, like, I feel like what they wanted to say was that it was like a swords into plowshares message, like, we should take these nuclear bombs and turn them into peacetime reactors to supply abundant power or something like that. But so many things are happening at once, I have no idea what message, if any, this film has. Right. It's also, I mean, considering he got, you know, stronger being near the sun... Couldn't that make him superpowered, being dropped into a nuclear power plant? I well, maybe. I mean, if he got, if he got his power from like fission and fusion, sure. But he seems to only get it from sunlight. And and at the end of the movie, like everything is wrapped up too quickly. Oh, they managed to you know buy out the majority share of the paper, so it's not run by the Warfields anymore. Which I like that triumphant moment. Yeah, where Perry White like. He knows enough about hostile takeovers that he's able to do a hostile takeover of the paper he works for to gain a majority control held, like, I guess held in trust or something by the other editors and writers. Yeah, we, you know, Superman flies Luthor back to the prison yard where he was in the, in the beginning of the movie. Lenny, he flies Lenny to Boys Town. <laughs> yes. Lacey... Uh, he se- uh, he sells the Kent farm to Lacey, uh, who leaves the paper. He's still, it's ambiguous where he is with Lois Lane. Then he flies the kid into space to show him the Earth. And he's like, oh, I hope you, you all can see it the way I see it, is this beautiful, fragile place. Which is so cheesy looking. The f- Like, it's a beautiful sentiment, but it's completely undercut with the cheesiness of the flight effects. And the way they both seem to flap their arms to stay in the air. Yeah, it's, uh, it doesn't quite work. But on the whole, like, I don't know, there's a kind of hokiness to Superman 4 that makes it more enjoyable than sort of the overstuffed, lethargic Superman 3. So I, I would give Superman 4 a sequel, yes. It, you have to be, you know, go into it knowing that it's not going to be the effects bonanza that the first two movies were. But as a bit of sort of hokey, low-budget Superman fun, I think it's absolutely a, a passable way to kill 90 minutes. 
You know, I think I'm going to have to agree. I'm going to have to give it a, a, a very light sequel, yes. Um, as I say, I love the ideas in this film, even if the execution is awful. But I think what really saves this movie for me is it's short. It's it's yes. about eight. It's about ninety two minutes. It is a short movie. It doesn't have time to get boring. And like once you notice one crazy dumb thing about it, it's on to the next crazy dumb thing. So in that sense, at least, like the the rapid fire nature of its badness makes it very tolerable and and uh, breezy. Right. Um, so what's your pitch of sequel? Oh gosh. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to avoid uh, bringing Brainiac uh, back again. So I think I think uh, what I'm gonna do. Oh gosh, I'm 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 really running through uh, Superman's Rogues Gallery. So I feel cheated that we didn't get Bizarro in this movie. So the next mm -hmm. movie is going to be all about Bizarro. Um, that uh, some of the t cloned tissue that was used to make Nuclear Man has survived, and it gets in the hands of another mad scientist. This mad scientist is going to be uh, Toy Man, who basically wants his own army of Superman toy soldiers that he can play with. So Toy Man, while doing various toy-themed crimes in Metropolis, which fly under Superman's radar initially because it's sort of like a crook with a gimmick, Superman's dealing with bigger threats, um, he manages to, in to somewhat clone the Superman DNA and creates Bizarro, it starts creating an army of bizarros who he sort of sends out in the world to do these grim parodies of everything that Superman does because he wants to literally turn the whole world into his plaything. Uh, and the whole movie will uh, will climax with a showdown between Superman and the Toy Man, but the Toy Man will have built a giant robot toy soldier that he'll fight Superman with. So it'll be a really awesome, crazy fight sequence with Toy Man using every toy-based gimmick against Superman. Yo-yo bombs, uh, explosive silly putty, um, jump ropes that can tie Superman up that he can't break out of. It'll be fantastic. And I think I'll play up the camp a bit since it's the Toy Man. Oh, and you know what? You know who I want to have play the Toy Man? Um... Uh, I'm going to have it be Mal the Malcolm McDowell of the late 1980s. I'm going to assume that this movie would have come out in 89. Oh, okay. Very good. So it would be... Hello, Superman. I'm the toy man. Yeah, yeah the sneering Malcolm McDowell. That's, that's a good choice. Um, Are you ready for a bit of the ultraviolence? <laughs> so Superman, I do like the character, but I know so little about the comics. I'm not sure what I would do. I think... Um, if I was doing Superman 5, I would definitely do it without Lex Luthor. I think they've sort of done that to death. Hmm. And I think you might have a... Um, maybe do a prequel, just focusing on um, Jor-El. Huh. And, and kind of have parallels between him and Superman's life. And um, maybe make some changes in, in the story to explain why Superman has these powers and maybe, you know, they have a, uh, a, a scientific sort of simulator center on Krypton where Kryptonians could go in and simulate what their, um, how their skills and powers would react in different planets. And one of them happens to be Earth. And that's where they get the idea to send little Clark to Earth. But it, it, it would end with them launching Clark Kent and the rocket. 
as everyone's getting sort of blown to pieces. You know, you, you know what it sounds like you want to adapt? It sounds like what you want to adapt is the graphic novel Jor-El, First Superman of Earth. Okay, I haven't read that, but sure. It, it's, a, it's a neat premise for the story, but the, the premise is that Jor-El, know, knowing the destruction of Krypton is coming, it's about him trying to find a good life-sustaining planet to send his only child to, and he visits Earth during the during oh. like the early Depression era, and hmm. he discovers that when he's on Earth, he gets superpowers. So it's this super genius Kryptonian scientist in early Depression era Earth, kind of like helping people deal with the Dust Bowl and things like that before going back to Krypton to build uh, the baby rocket. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that sounds pretty cool. Yeah, so, I mean, that's what I would do. Um, and with that in mind, are we, do you want to do our dialogue scene now? Yeah, we could do our dialogue scene. What do we call this segment? I can't remember. Uh, I, I don't know. Sequel scripts? Or... Se- sequel scripts is fine, okay. Um, so, um, this is a scene between Lex Luthor and Lenny. Uh, which uh, part do you want to play it through, actually? I've done Luthor before. I think I'd like to do Lenny. Okay, so I'll, I'll be Lex. Um, do you realize what I can create with a single strand of Superman's hair? Uh, a toupee that flies? Oh, I look at you, Lenny, and I know how the Romans felt when the barbarians arrived at their city gate. Yeah, but why the hair? The hair contains a sample of Superman's genetic material, the building blocks of his body. With my genius and enough nuclear power to mutate those genes, I will create a being with all his powers but with absolute allegiance to me. <laughs> I do like that toupee that flies bit. That's that's a perfect dumb joke for a henchman. It is, and I wouldn't mind Superman fighting against a toupee that flies. You could have some fun jokes in there. <laughs> now on to what you're watching. Um, I watched a documentary not that long ago that I oh? found pretty good. And it wasn't related to comic books or movies. It was... Uh, <laughs> called I need to get the title right here we go yeah it's called do I sound gay and it was a 2014 documentary by David Thorpe and uh, it's one of those documentaries where the director is also kind of a character in it which is kind of annoying but in this case for this uh, show it makes sense and the idea is he's uh, a gay man that wants to sound more straight and goes to speech therapy to help him change his speech patterns but then he also talks to a lot of um his gay friends and gay celebrities like Dan Savage, David Sedaris, Margaret Cho, George Takei, and, and sort of gets their thought about what they think about voices sounding gay or not, or if they have to butch it up or not. And um, it's they talk to University of Toronto linguist Ron Smith. Um, they, they talk to a guy who specializes in making, uh, you know, Broadway actors that are gay not sound gay when they're on stage. When he has a whole series of audio tapes, it's um, I found it very, very interesting. Hmm. But unfortunately, and it brought you know memories of me as a kid having speech therapy because I would pronounce and I still do sometimes pronounce R's as W's and that sort of thing. <laughs> oh, thank you, Spock the corgi. I was going to say you sometimes um, pronounce words as barks. As barks. Arf, arf. Um, and I, but I think the interesting thing about the end of the film is it's sort of he the <laughs> David Thorpe doesn't do a great job of sounding straight even after practicing all the hours with all the tapes. Like, he still talks to his friends and they're like, do you notice anything different about the way I talk? And they're like, no. (laughs) And 
Some of his friends, I think, make a point, and uh, I, I think they're right. And they're like, it's sad that he wants to change the way that he sounds. But they also go into a bit about the stereotypical gay-sounding voice coming from stereotypes uh, in the movies, uh, even as far back as, like, the 20s, but also going into things like uh, gay, early gay celebrities like Paul Rudd and that sort of thing. So, what do I sound gay was, was good. I, I wish it would have been better. It doesn't come to any big conclusion at the end, but you, you get some fun stories from different people. And um, it's it, it's interesting. I just wish it would have been a bit... would have pushed, pushed a bit harder for some great final statement on the subject. Hmm. Yeah. Because there's no real resolution he comes to at the end. I'll I'll have to check that out. Yeah, it's um I, I managed to catch it on Hulu. It might be on some other streaming services as well. I'm not sure. Um, but it came out in 2014 at the Toronto International Film Festival, and then got a theatrical, a very limited theatrical release in 2015. Um, so what's something you've been watching? Uh, so uh, I'm going to get this one out of the way just real quick. I watched the complete series, The Toys That Made Us, which is a documentary series about toys, which was fantastic but way too short there's only like four episodes although i did find out last night there there is a second season in the works so i cannot wait to see where it goes uh, but the first season covers he-man barbie um gi joe and star wars action figures uh but the thing that i really want to talk about uh, i watched the classic horror movie one of the first truly gory horror films blood feast by herschel gordon lewis have you seen movies by Herschel Gordon Lewis before? I, I have I have seen some, uh, and I've seen a lot of clips show up in documentaries, but Blood Feast so Blood Feast was a movie that came out in uh, nineteen sixty-three. Uh, it was very it was very infamous uh, for its depiction of blood and in fact was supposedly banned in some in some places. Uh, and the the story the story it's about this caterer named Mr. Ramsey's who is also secretly a member of this cult that worships the Egyptian goddess Ishtar. Or at least in the movie they claim is an Egyptian goddess. I believe the historical mythological Ishtar was was Babylonian. Uh, but and he's he's a cannibal cultist and he kills people and, you know, uses their meat in these these rituals and he has his next big project is there's this uh, there's this teenager who's going to have a big coming out party soiree and her mother hires Mr. Ramses to do the catering and he convinces her to do a quote unquote Egyptian feast. But it's really his whole plan to sacrifice her virgin daughter. Uh, and so you have the stuff Mr. Ramsey's doing. You have his victims. You have uh, you have the boyfriend of a victim trying to find out who's responsible for the killings. You have police detectives trying to find out who's responsible for the killings. The music is this neat, creepy organ music. And the blood is shockingly realistic. The blood is not transparent. The blood is red and purple and thick and stains everything. Um... It is really realistic-looking blood. Uh, and I say that as somebody who's seen a fair amount of, of, of blood, both my own and the blood of other uh, organisms. And it's it's strangely paced. Like, the whole movie, it never speeds up or slows down. It just, it just always moves in the direction of these big slam-bang gore murder scenes. But 
but in its way, it's still really good and really entertaining. And it's not too long. It's only a 67-minute movie. Hmm. And so it sounds like it actually has a story to it. It's not just blood scenes. Oh no no there 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 is there is a story even if even if the progression of certain elements of the story are a bit awkward but it is it is very well directed uh, and and just just kind of fun and like a lot of amateur actors in it uh, which sort of helps because a lot of the things become heightened in a way that kind of makes it work like an old EC comic actually probably is the best way to describe it the whole thing has a very EC comics feel to it. Does that mean it has an ending that's sort of ironic? Uh, I would I wouldn't say the ending is ironic, but the guilty are punished rather brutally. Okay, well that's always important in those stories. Um, cool. Yeah, I think the other thing I've been watching is uh, my wife and I finished up watching the first season of Star Trek Discovery, hmm. the new Star Trek series. And I, I don't really want to get into it, but halfway through the first season, it has some plot twists that totally change the feel of the show. Hmm. And um, the ending of season one has some of the most, has a really moronic moment that I hope the show doesn't stick to it. I think I know what you mean, but if you, do, if you want to avoid spoilers, we can discuss it after the show. Well, I can... No, I'm, I'm fine. Eh, yeah, let's talk about it after the show. <laughs> okay. Because it's a pretty new series, and to get it, you have to subscribe to the CBS All Access uh, monthly service. But yeah, it's and it just has to do with, you know, if you're doing a... It's a Star Trek show that takes place, I think, after Enterprise, but before the original series. Yeah, it's supposed um, to be set like 10-ish years, I think, before uh, original series. Right, and it's... I guess it's just the point where if you make too many references to other things, it just gets annoying. So I think that's what sort of pissed me off about it. And it's so much more focused on action than having stories about some moral quandary hmm. or something. Um, have, have you had a chance to watch it yet? No, I'm, I'm not interested in subscribing to a streaming right. service for one show. Yeah. Especially since I do want some... like. As good as, as the action parts of the show might be, and I do like a bit of action in my Trek, I do want it to be about moral quandaries. And I can, and strangely enough, I can get that from the Orville, which I did not expect. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I would say even, like, this show has more action than, like, the more recent Star Trek live-action movies. You can tell they're spending a lot of money on it, but it doesn't feel necessarily Star Trek. I, I thought, you know, after the first few episodes, okay, maybe it's going to calm down and fall into a rhythm of them investigating planets. Not really. It's uh, it's all focused on the human-Klingon uh, conflicts that go on. Hmm. So, um, all right, so next week on SequelCast 2, we're going to take a look at, wrap up our look at Superman with Superman Returns. The, uh, the Brian Singer film that's very much in the spirit of the first few Superman movies. And uh, after that, I think I um, we talked about doing a comedic trilogy, but I think we should do something as sort of a, uh, a catch-up movie as an aperitif after that. And so, oh, marvelous. Uh, what I think would be fun is after uh, Superman Returns, I think we should take a look at the uh, Rocky film Creed. Oh, cool. Because that's available on uh, streaming services, and 
we've had some listeners request we talk about that one, and we talked about the Rocky films long ago in the original show. So we'll, next week is Superman Returns, followed by the week after that by Creed. And after that, we'll be looking at the Ace Ventura trilogy. So it is a trilogy, there. folks. Trust us. Yeah, yeah. There's a Ace Ventura Jr. or something like that. I've never seen the third one. It should be interesting. All right. So for a sequel cast, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at M-A-T-W-B-T. And you can follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. Uh, follow the show on Twitter at SequelCast2. Uh, like us on Facebook and leave a review on um, iTunes or whatever podcast listening platform you listen to us on. Uh, for the SequelCast2, this is Matt. And this is Thrasher. Saying, I am father now. Still dangerous.